everybody. Um, let me add my, um, my voice to the congratulation and well-wishing uh, for you mothers. Happy Mother's Day. I hope today you are pampered and spoiled beyond belief. Um, or if you're one of those mothers who just wants a silent moment all by yourself, I pray that your husbands and kids will give it to you. Um, I know there's some mothers, just, they just want to be left alone for Mother's Day because they're around noise all the time. Uh, well, if, if you're new to our church, you have uh, just started coming in the last two or three weeks, you probably don't even know who I am. I'm, I am one of the pastors here. Uh, name's Dan, and um, we have actually been out of the country uh, with a group from Parkway uh, touring the Holy Land. Uh, we left on the 22nd of April, and we flew into Amman, Jordan, and um, spent three days there and visited Petra, which is a must-see. And then crossed the border into Israel and spent eight days there looking at the, the various places where Jesus walked and where a lot of uh, amazing things happened, where God revealed himself um, uh, in flesh and blood. And it was, a, it was a great time. At some point in the future, I want the group that went to come uh, when we get our pictures together and, and to share a little bit of it with you. Um, but that's for a later time. And I did want to share with you a couple high points for me personally. Um, probably the high point for me, since I've seen the sites before, was that I had the privilege of, of baptizing my oldest in the Jordan River, and um, that was an amazing moment for me and for him. Um, and probably the second highlight for me was that I got to go with my parents. My parents are in their mid-70s, and they've both had hip replacements, so walking isn't really something in their future, and, and yet they could still walk, and they were able to go see all these sites, and we were able to do it together, which was, was great. Um, I will say that the, our, our, our little um, three days in Jordan were interesting. Um, it, is a, it is an Arab Muslim country, and I have been in a uh, Muslim country before, but, but this one is a little different. Uh, we were touring in, a, in a, uh, an ancient Roman city built in what is now modern-day Jordan called Jerash. And um, all these little Arab kids, um, apparently they came in from the outlying villages, and most of them have never seen Westerners before, Americans. And my niece was there, and she's 21 years old, and she is the spitting image of Avril Lavigne, you know, the virtuous, wonderful singer from Canada. Um, that's being facetious completely. Anyway, they, I don't know if they thought that she was her or what, but they, cried, they, they swarmed her with their little iPhones, and yes, they have phones over there. Like the little kids have phones, and they're taking pictures of her, and they're trying to get at her and trying to touch her, and she's getting freaked out. She says... Uncle Danny, I need you to come and, and, uh, and protect me. And I, I did a stupid thing. I, sometimes my sense of humor goes straight into the toilet. And I went up next to her and I said, two camels right here, two camels. Good price for you. And, uh, and she didn't find it funny at all. <laughs> anyway, it was, it, was a, it was a good time. Um, <laughs> but while we were there, uh, I heard that you had a great missions conference here, um, AJ Play, uh, just uh, from what I heard, did an amazing job and just um, lit the fires of what's happening in India and the, the gospel work that's just mushrooming, almost out of control over there. Um, I did have the privilege of hearing him last Sunday. I got to sit and listen to him and, and just, again, just marveling at what God is doing. I remember the picture of when his dad first started in front of the tent and then seeing the church and everything today and just like, wow, God, you're just doing some amazing things over there. And, um, and I felt as he was talking, I thought, you know what, I, I feel like it would shortcut our mission focus if I just like jumped back into a study in Samuel. So I kind of wanted to uh, uh, linger on the whole mission theme um, in a way that, that hopefully will encourage you um, with news of how God is, um, how his kingdom is unfolding uh, right around us. 
good news. And, uh, you know, I, we came back and saw the news in the papers. And, of course, this last week was a, a troubling time of news for many of us, you know, um, seeing the moral shifts that are taking place in our country at, at some pretty astounding rates of seeing the attempt to redefine marriage, um, taking a serious step forward with the endorsement of our president um, in the wrong direction um, is, is troubling to the, to, the, to the Christian heart. You know, we, we believe that morality, biblical morality, isn't, isn't an enslaving thing. It actually is a freeing thing, and it's, it's for the well-being of, of society. Um, so it's, it's sad to, to read those things in the news. Um, and sometimes I know we as Christians can be um, alarmed by it, panicked by it. Um, we can grow anxious, frustrated, angry, and bitter over things that are taking place. Um, there is a place for lament. But what I want to remind us of is that um, our sense of shalom, that is peace, our sense of security, our hope, and our joy ultimately is not tied to what takes place or what's decided in Washington, D.C. Nor is it tied to the moral consensus of the people of the United States. That's kind of cool. They actually don't get a clap every once in a while in a Parkway community morning. Anyway, um, but our our citizenship is is elsewhere, and it's, it's in Christ and in the new creation, and it's coming. And, um, and I just wanted to focus our attention back on the plan of God and who's the real planner. Um, nothing catches him by surprise, and he is doing his work. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to just kind of look at Psalm 33 for like a minute, and then I want to jump to Romans 11, looking at this idea of the plan. And I'm going to kind of draw three strands into it. Um, that is the scriptural strand of God's kingdom, his plan, um, then a reflection on where we're at in terms of global mission, and then the last one is how Israel fits into it. Um, and I, I really want you to try and pay attention to the first biblical part because that's the foundation of it. And then you can, the last part isn't really difficult to listen to. It's not technical. It's not overly, overly theological. But I wanted to start in Psalm 33 because Psalm 33 is, has been a precious gem in my life. It is a psalm that celebrates God's sovereign love uh, for his people. Um, in fact, it's a, like I said, it's a celebration. It's a call to trust and worship and also rejoice and to hope in the Lord and to wait for him. But it is, uh, when, you, when distilled down, it is a psalm of God's sovereign love for his people. And right in the middle, in verse 10, we have this contrast that I have to just keep coming back to as a person who lives in a messy world, just like you, where sometimes the news isn't all that great, and to be reminded who's on the throne. This is what he says right in the middle of this psalm, celebrating the sovereign love of God. He says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands, by contrast, it stands forever, and the plans of his heart to all generations. I don't know if there's a more clear contrast between the transient and failing and frustrated plans of nations and men versus the eternal and the unfailing plan of God than this verse right here, these two verses is the, the, the nation's plan. They take counsel. They try to fix the world, and sometimes they try to, to fix the world by redefining things. Um, but at the end of the day, their plans will be, and their counsel will be frustrated, even if for a short season it seems like their plans have gained success. At the end of the day, the only plan that's eternal, 
the only plan that um, is unfailing is the plan of the Lord, and that's where we attach our faith, our hope, and our security. The Lord's counsel stands forever. The plans of his heart, his gracious plans to all generations. That's, that's, that's where our, our heart is to be fixed. Um, and when we invert that and we begin to look to Washington to fix our problems or people or institutions, even if we wouldn't articulate it that way, we will find ourselves inevitably anxious, fearful, frustrated, angry, and bitter. But it's our trust in the second part, that the Lord's plan is, 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 is unfailing and it is eternal, can't be changed, and nothing surprises him. He's not surprised by this last week. He's not surprised by things that take place. It's just right in line with what he's doing. And we have to have the faith to believe that, and in that faith comes our peace and our hope and our sense of security. That's, that's the plan, the certain, eternal, unfailing plan. That's where our heart is to trust. The second part of that, which would naturally um, uh, raise a question, is uh, what is that plan? What is God's eternal, unfailing plan? And that leads me to Romans chapter 11. Now, let me give you the short answer first. The short answer of what God's unfolding plan that can't be changed, it's unfailing, and it's eternal is, is in short, it is to secure a kingdom through and for his son. Let me say that again. That God's plan, the eternal, um, unfailing plan, is to secure a kingdom through and for his son, Jesus Christ. And that plan is at the center, according to the Bible, of all of human history. Now, we sometimes as Christians think that what's really happening in history is what we read in the papers. You know, the big issues of, oh, what are we going to do about the Iranian problem or, or what's going to happen with uh, North Korea or, or how is the European Union going to fix their debt problems? How are we going to fix ours? How are we going to deal with uh, shifting morals and all those things? And, and those are the headline grabbers of, of, of today. Um, and we tend to think that's the history part. And somehow what God is doing is some little appendix or, a, you know, it's a... It's a uh, attachment, a little side compartment of history. It's, that's not the way the Bible views it. Everything in history is connected in some way, shape, or form to the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus. And so while the rest of the world is distracted by the questions of Iran and North Korea and, and shifting morality, um, we have, God is silently and steadily building his kingdom just like leaven through an entire loaf of bread. It's happening. And what heaven is see, sees as headlines is really what's happening in the kingdom. And all the rest of it really is peripheral to what's happening in, in the kingdom of God. And um, yet it, when we come to, to Romans 11, um, we see that this unfolding plan um, to secure um, a kingdom for Jesus uh, through him and for him takes on two kind of, might call it movements in history. Um, that is, it unfolds in two directions. There is only one plan and only one purpose, but it unfolds in two different ways according to Romans chapter 11. It moves in the direction of the nations, and then it moves in the direction of the Jewish people. I want you to follow this. Uh, before I read this, let me just say, most of you probably are aware that, that Romans is considered by many to be the purest, clearest expression of the gospel found in the New Testament. If you really want to know the nuts and bolts of what the gospel is and how it works, you read Romans 1 through 11. Um, it is the clearest. 
But within those 11 chapters that expound on the nature of the gospel, Paul raises and answers a very important question. And the question is this. What about the Jews? What about Israel? Think about it for a moment. They have received uh, a multitude of promises in the Old Testament. They, uh, Jesus comes to town, and, and they reject him. They, they string him up. They crucify him. And uh, Jesus basically says, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed because you rejected me, which it was destroyed in 70 A.D., its temple, its cities, and so forth, and many of the Jews fled. Um, so what about the, the Jews? Has God, like, kicked them to the curb? Is, is there any place for them anymore? And if so, that creates some troubling questions about God's promises. Is he going to do that to us? It's such an important question, the question of what about Israel? What about the Jews? Um, is such an important question he spends three chapters devoted to answering the question. Chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. And chapter 11 is the chapter that deals with the future of the Jewish people or the future of Israel. Again, you can see the connection we just got back and why we're going to chapter 11 where it talks about the future. And you find as you read through chapter 11 that these two movements are taking place um, in the direction of Gentiles, which is just a cryptic word for a non-Jew, that is to the nations, and also this direction to the Jewish people. Now let me read. I've put it in different colors so you can feel the contrast between these two uh, unfolding movements of God's one plan. Uh, Paul asks, so I ask, did they, talking about Israel, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now the question, if it was to be paraphrased, would be something like this. Did they stumble so that they would fall uh, beyond ever getting up again? In other words, is it a final fall? And his answer emphatically is no, by no means. Rather, the reverse of it's implied, is that they didn't stumble in order that they might ultimately fall. They did stumble, but they will rise, is the sense. And you continue on in the verse. Rather, through their trespass, their trespass, their sin was that they rejected Jesus. But it had a purpose that benefited you and benefited me. Um, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You see this movement towards the non-Jewish people, so as to make Israel jealous. There's a sense of hope there. If Israel becomes jealous, then she will return. Verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, there's that Gentile dimension again, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, now here's the positive side, their inclusion mean? In other words, included back in to the kingdom. Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, there's the movement towards the, the nations, what will their, that is Israel's, acceptance mean but life from the dead? That's resurrection. And you continue on, verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. That's the hope of being grafted back into the kingdom. Uh, verse 24, for if you were cut from what is by nature, he's talking about Gentiles here, we're cut by, from by what is nature, a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. Um, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree, that is the Jewish people, grafted right back in to the promises. Uh, verse 25, and here's the central verse. Lest you be wise in your own sight, 
I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And here's the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, that's a time word, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A partial hardening implying that at some point when the until is fulfilled, that hardening will be taken away. And that's after the fullness of the Gentiles. See these kind of two movements in the unfolding, um, unfailing, eternal plan of God to secure a kingdom for and through his Son. Now at this point, let me, let me just kind of give you an update on what that means. And I, and I hope that your heart resonates with this um, in terms of um, where's, uh, where are we at in the kingdom unfolding plan of God? And I say this with some sense of tentativeness. At the same time, uh, this is, uh, these observations are being made by, by numerous people, and, and it seems to me to be fitting to focus on, hey, wow, the Lord is really doing some amazing things in, in these two movements. Let's start first with the Gentile part. Now here is, I'm going to be really high level, and I'm just going to be very general. But you think about how where the center of Christianity has moved over the centuries, for the last 2,000 years, um, it has been largely and uh, almost exclusively toward the direction of the Gentiles. Um, in the first four centuries, the center of Christianity, and by center I mean where they, they were writing and thinking and so forth, um, where they were sending missionaries from, where the big powerful churches were, was largely in southern Europe and North Africa and, of course, Asia Minor. Or if map might help you here, uh, this might, might help. This is largely where um, the kingdom center was, the gospel proclamation where Christianity was exploding is in this direction here. Now, there were apostles who went, for example, uh, Thomas to India, but the sense is that the saturation of the gospel was, wasn't super broad and it didn't explode. It exploded in North Africa and also in Southern Europe, um, first four centuries. Beginning in the fifth century, up into the 18th century, it went north. The center of Christianity went north to northern Europe and eastern Europe. Um, it took root in things like Cambridge and Oxford, and there's the establishment of institutions of Christian learning. They were originally Christian learning institutions. Um, the great thinkers of uh, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, uh, Wycliffe, Wesley Brothers, uh, Whitfield. I mean, those were all in north, northern Europe. Um, and that's where the majority of the... the uh, of the missionaries were sent out from is Northern Europe and Eastern Europe. And that was between the centuries of basically the 5th and the 18th. Beginning in the 18th with the rise of North America, and I want you to just follow me here because there is a point, all right? Um, beginning in the 18th century with the rise of, of, of North America and the United States in particular, um, there was a shift. And that is the center of vibrant uh, missionary sending, church planting um, activity shifted over to North America. Institutions were built. You know, all of our greatest colleges were originally Christian institutions for higher learning of Dartmouth and Yale and Princeton and so forth. They were all Christian learning institutions. Churches were planted. Pastors were sent out. Missionaries have been sent all around the world from the United States in the 18th, 19th, 20th, and now the 21st century from the United States. But... Over the last several decades, another shift has taken place, an even bigger shift. And I know this might um, 
saddened those of us Americans who have a superiority complex. The idea of some other place being better than us kind of, uh, uh, really, it just offends our arrogance. But um, the bottom line is that the center of Christianity is shifting again, if it hasn't already. Um, and that is to the three continents south, both um, South America, Africa, and Asia. The center of Christianity is moving down that direction. Um, this is a, a little bit dated now. Um, Christianity Today, Article 1992, so this is 20 years ago. Um, it's even more so today. Um, where the author, Paul Pearson, he's a, a, a professor of history, church history um, at Fuller. He writes this. He writes, only 200 years ago, Protestant Christianity was almost exclusively Western. It is Western Europe, Northwestern Europe, and us. Exclusively. Now, as 20 years ago, Protestants are strongest in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. From a Christian standpoint, the modern missionary movement has turned the world upside down. The center of Christianity has, shift, has shifted south, Latin America, Africa, and also China. So that, and here's a couple little facts for you that you might find interesting, and it should stir your soul a little bit. So a little, little country like South Korea, um, compared to the massiveness of the United States, it is the second highest, second highest missionary sending country in the world. That's South Korea. Check this out. Um, I guess I, did I show that to you? I guess I did. Check this out. This is a 2006 uh, Christianity Today, which is a reputable magazine. Um, this is what was written uh, by Rob Mall. South Korea today sends out more missionaries than any other country except the United States. In terms of missionaries per congregation, Korea sends one missionary for every 4.2 congregations, which places it 11th in the world. The U.S. does not even rank in the top 10. So in terms of numbers of missionaries sent by numbers of congregations, we don't even rank in the top 10. And Korea is sending four point, for every 4.2 congregations, sending out missionaries. In other words, per congregation, they're way out sending us. And then the reports that are coming in from China, like what's happening in China, are also staggering and massive. Now, the next uh, little quote here is taken from uh, BBC or the British Broadcasting Corporation, which is, you know, to call it Christian would be a stretch beyond imagination. But this is what they said. This is 2011. This is last year, September. It is impossible to say how many Christians there are in China today, but no one denies the numbers are exploding. Love that word, explosion. Uh, the government says 25 million, 18 million Protestants, and 6 million Catholics. I know the math is kind of messed up there, but that's what they wrote. <laughs> independent estimates, independent, all agree this is a vast understatement. A vast understatement. A conservative figure is 60 million Chinese believers. There are already more Chinese at church on a Sunday than in the whole of Europe. Like, now I'm not suggesting that there aren't pockets of, of tribal people who still need to be reached in all of these areas. That's why we, you know, we're supporting the Arvins and we're supporting the Dregs and so forth, because there are people to be reached there. But there are, at conservative estimates, over 60 million Chinese Christians. That's more than the entire population of Canada. 
That's, at least I think it is. I think it was 50 last time I checked. That's, that's amazing. And again, think through the map that I had up there for a moment, how, how especially since the 1800s, there has been an unfolding, there has been a, a progression in the kingdom and the gospel, the likes of which the previous 1800 years never saw. You know, all the continents are there. You say, well, what happened to Australia? Well, you know, that's a British commonwealth, right? That had churches a long time ago. That is, the, so you come back to Romans 11, you know? Brothers, a, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We're, we're living in exciting days right now. Like the, the kingdom gospel is, is an, on every continent, and even though we don't feel like it's exploding here in the United States, I mean, that's a sovereign work, right? Um, it is exploding in other places. And Jesus taught us. He says, um, the gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed through the world as a witness, as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. The Messiah returns. God sorts everything out in judgment, the resurrection from the dead, and the recreation of all things. That's what he says. When the gospel goes all the way through the world, well, then the end will come. Well, how, how close are we to the fullness of the Gentiles coming in? Now, I don't know the answer to that question, and I'd be foolish to state. But it sure seems from all outward signs that the Lord is wrapping up this Gentile mission. Now, what about the other side? I said two movements, right, of God's unfolding plan, one in the direction of the nations. But it would seem, from a reading of uh, Romans 11, that there is one final nation yet to be reached, and that is the Jewish people. I mean, isn't that what the logic of the verse says? Is that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until... That means when the until is fulfilled, it seems that the partial hardening is going to be taken away and there's going to be an influx of Jewish people who proclaim Jesus as their Messiah and enter into the kingdom. That's what it says to me. Now that brings me to something that we experienced in Israel that I, I just wanted to encourage you with. Uh, I think you, many of you know that Dan Overby and I spent four months over in Israel back in 1990, 91, something like that. Uh, we lived in the heart of, of Jerusalem for, for four months and just in and out of the old city and got to meet lots of people. Uh, but I never once, while I was there, met a Messianic Jew. Um, you don't know what that word means, Messianic Jew. They actually believe in Jesus and embrace Jesus as their Messiah. They don't want to be called Christians because the word Christian is loaded with all kinds of negative baggage for them. Um, so they call themselves Messianics or Messianic Jews. Now, I heard that they existed back in 1991 somewhere. I never saw one, never touched one, never spoke to one. Like, rare to ever meet a Messianic Jew. Um, started to wonder if they really existed, you know, like a, what is that horse with the thing, you know, myth. 2007, we went back. Didn't meet any Messianic Jews. Um, this time was different. Uh, we met our guide and um, a, a sweet, very knowledgeable, but, but spunky lady. Um, a lot of fun. And I sat, sat next to her on the bus because we had to collaborate in the planning of the a trip and so forth. And by the way, you, again, you've you got to go sometime in your life. It is a bucket list must to go over there. And just to see what the Jewish people have done to that land, amazing. Anyway, 
sat next to her, and, and she started talking about what's going on in Israel. And, and, and what caught my attention was she spoke very favorably of this messianic movement. Of course, I want to know, like, okay, well, back in 1991, the, the attitude of the Jewish people towards Messianic Jews was very negative. Shouldn't even be in the country. Not even a Jew anymore if you believe in Jesus. I mean, that's how strong it was. And so I asked her, I said, so, so what's, the, what's the kind of prevailing opinion about the Messianic movement here? And she said, you know, it's, 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 it's changing. It's, it's actually um, looked upon much more positively than, than in the past. And Christianity as a whole, um, because it's being separated from the... European form of Christendom, which was very militaristic and so forth, dominating. But, but Christians in America have been very f- supportive of the Jewish people, so there's this softening. Well, then I looked over at her Bible, you know, and she's speaking so favorably of it. And I look, and she has a Hebrew Bible that has both Hebrew and uh, English in it. And it has a New Testament. And it's completely marked up and dog-eared as if she studies that thing for herself. And I'll tell you, the, the knowledge she has of what Jesus did and where he did it um, and how much she knows about that New Testament would put most Christians in America to shame. Well, I was, I was like kind of suspecting by her, her very positive, affirming statements about the, the, you know, the Messianic Jews, I was starting to think, well, maybe she's like a closet mess, Messianic Jew. A closet Messianic Jew, that's kind of funny. Um, well, then, Peter Sandberg, he's, he was uh, one of the guys on our tour, and he also worked for Jews for Jesus, which is a ministry intent on reaching the Jews. And, well, he just in private asked her point blank, so do you believe Jesus is going to come back? And she said, yes. Well, I was just like, she is a closet messianic. Now, you might say, okay, that's one. You met, finally met one messianic Jew in Israel. You're bound to meet one sometime. It's just fluke. No, it's not a fluke. Then we went from there up to, uh, up to the Galilee area, which is a must-see as well. And one of the things they do on a tour is you take it out in the m- middle of Galilee on a boat, and it's a wooden boat, just to kind of recreate what it was like when Jesus was out there. And you read some verses, and you pray, and you sing. And um, we got on this boat, and the boat was called Faith. We get out into the middle, and the, the captain of the boat, the Jewish guy, stands up with his microphone. He's got a microphone, big old speakers <laughs> on his boat. And he, he says to us, he says, I just want to tell you that I, I met Yeshua 13 years ago, and I believe in him as my Messiah. I mean, that's a paraphrase. And I was just like, really? Like, this is amazing. Like, this is the second one I've met. And he brought with him his little messianic band on, on the boat, and he told us, you know, I own three boats on Galilee, and I called them Faith, Hope, and Love. And so he begins to, to, he says, so how about if I lead you in some worship? We're like, absolutely. So he begins leading us in worship. And, and again, his big speakers and amplifiers and his guys playing in the band, we have this sound that's rolling over the waves of, of Galilee. You know what song he, he led us to sing? He, the Revelation song. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Then he got to the chorus and he started singing it in Hebrew. And I remember back to my seminary days, hearing the Hebrew of worship of Jesus. Kadosh, 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 le Adonai Elohim Sabaot. And I just thought, I am listening to a Jewish man worship Jesus as his Messiah. And I'm just like, wow. I don't think, I don't know if there was a dry eye, but it was a moving experience to see, wow, my guide is a Messianic Jew, or at least a closet one. And then these guys are just singing about Yeshua, and it's just like right out there in, in Galilee, spilling over the waves. And then one last little thing that experienced over there. It was their Independence Day on April 26th. And 
one of the traditions that the Jewish people have every Independence Day is they put on this big, massive, global Bible quiz for all of their youth. So it doesn't make a difference where you live. You can live in Israel, Brooklyn, New York, um, San Francisco, Australia. Is if you're Jewish, you can compete in this, you know, quiz that they do one time a year on Independence Day. And I'll tell you, the Jewish youth know their Bibles. You know, that's part of the bar mitzvah, is the preparation of reading the Torah and all that stuff. Well, um, before they actually get to the global competition on Bible knowledge, um, there are these district competitions first. And there was a competition held in Jerusalem, the heart of Judaism. Um, and guess who won? A girl 17 years old by the name of Bat Levi, a Messianic Jew. That did not sit well with the ultra-Orthodox Jews, that a Messianic would win the Bible quiz in Jerusalem. It was all over the paper. Um, She did did go on to compete as one of the four finalists. She didn't win, but one of the four finalists. It was was an uproar in in Israel, especially amongst the Orthodox. A Messianic Jew winning the the district of of Jerusalem. And I just thought, thought to myself, what is going on here since 91, and now there's this softening. Now, you might say, well, that's all just anecdotal, right? That's just your limited perspective. Okay, maybe it was just coincidence you met all those people. Well, it at least intrigued me enough to come back and start doing reading of my own and to realize that it's not just anecdotal. Um, this is 2008, so this is, whatever, four years ago. Um, this is uh, Christian Broadcasters uh, News There is an attention-getting resurgence in the number of Jews who believe in Jesus with many leaders, leaders from Israel, uh, saying it's the strongest growth since the time of Jesus and that the Messianic movement could be on the brink of great revival. Now, you can pick up your San Francisco Chronicle and read all the bad news you want, um, LA Times, whatever. To me hearing that there is a softening on the part of Jewish people towards their Messiah in conjunction with Romans 11. Now that's news. And, and, and for the Christian heart, that's like, hey, the kingdom is, is, is the, the plan of God is taking shape. It's, it's, it's happening all around us. And it's unfailing. Nobody can thwart it. Nobody can change it. It's happening. Now I ask the question, is, it, is, is what's happening there the beginnings of the fulfillment of Romans 11, the anticipation that at some point, you know, the hardening is going to be taken away? I don't know. But I do know that it's in the plan. I do know that it's in the plan, according to Romans chapter 11, that the God will turn at the fullness of the Gentiles, his grace and his favor back to his Jewish people. And here's something else that's really interesting. Do you know that there is this, uh, AJ was telling me about this, there is this growing movement amongst the 60 million Chinese Christians called Back to Jerusalem. Back to Jerusalem. You can go read about it. Look, Google, Back to Jerusalem. You'll get a whole bunch of sites that the Chinese people sending out missionaries want to carve a path with the gospel through the 1040 corridor. That's the hardest to reach people Back to the place it all started, Romans 11. And I just asked myself, where are we? I mean, these are exciting times. I don't know how much longer we have. But if Paul could say in his day in Romans 13 that the dawn is upon us, it's almost here, then how much more so, having seen all of the continents, 
with, a, with, 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 with the gospel having been preached and churches and missionaries being sent out. That's, that's good news. And for the Christian, that is the more important news than, 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 than what we read in the paper every given day. And that's not to say that those issues aren't important. You know, part of our mandate is to love our neighbors as ourselves, which means we should have some kind of a, a concern for the social well-being of our fellow countrymen. But the plan of God continues on unfailing and eternally. And it seems as if from all outward signs that we're, we're close. Amen. So, two things. One, that news should encourage you to not get so bogged down in the mess of right now. God's not surprised and he's silently and steadily, he's conquering but also to just pick up the pace, you know? Like, like AJ said last week, and I just thought it was well stated. It's like most of what we're interested in today and get all excited about will end up being, you know, next week's garage sale fodder. And to realize that our heart, the heart of a Christian church, is to seek first his kingdom. And if there are encumbrances in the, in the spirit of laziness in us to say, yeah, I don't want to be the lazy, encumbered Christian. I want to have a passion for the kingdom because that's really all that matters is the kingdom. So will you res- respond to this? We felt, you know, God's amazing because uh, he's mysterious and his plan is mysterious in the sense that we know it'll happen. It's unfailing. It's eternal. But at the same time, God has given us the privilege of praying that plan into fruition. I don't know how it works, but I do know that as we pray, eternity moves. And so I would simply ask us to kind of close this time of reflecting on some more mission activity and the unfolding of God's kingdom in these two ways. Um, If you would do two things, one, to give thanks because God is good and he's on the throne, and second, to pray that God would continue to stretch out his hand in power, both in the world and in our lives, And if we've been encumbered or lazy, that God would strip us from that and we would re-engage in kingdom uh, work. So give thanks and pray for God's power. And if, if you're comfortable praying with the person next to you or your family or your spouse, then I would ask you to pray together and pray out loud. For some reason, we still have a reticence to pray out loud. Um, and if you're uncomfortable with it, that's fine too. You, God hears the prayer of your heart. But we spend a few moments just giving thanks to the Lord for the good news of what he has done and also pray God in power continue to move in this world and through our lives. So if you would please just respond by giving thanks to the Lord in prayer and also praying forward the kingdom. Um, I think it would be very honoring to our King and God Jesus Christ. So if you would right now just go ahead and pray together.